Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Maybe you listeners think it's normal for global politics to be reshaped by a viral video, but to me, that's still kind of new. So this week, when a video came out of key heads of state of Canada, Britain, in France, chatting about Trump derisively like a sort of clique in a cafeteria, making fun of the president and creating headlines around the world? Well, that's kind of new to me. And today on Worldly, part of the Fox Media Podcast Network, we're not just going to talk about this video. We're going to talk about the NATO summit at which it took place and the overall role of the Atlantic Alliance in the age of Trump. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. What's up? It's really nice to to see all of you back here. I was in Israel. Jen was in Poland. There's been just like a lot of traveling around recently. Yeah. So it's it's good to see all of you in one room. Back at the home base of Washington, D.C. We spent uh, all the pre-episode time making jokes about North Korea uh, and bin Laden. So you, it's nice that you should know that we're really on brand now that we're all back and together. Let's talk about this NATO summit. Uh Alex, you've been you've been following it pretty closely. It seems like the whole thing has been one giant rolling catastrophe culminating in this this video that has become such an attention grabber. So yes and no. First of all, the, the video. Uh, the video, as, as Zach mentioned before, is Justin Trudeau of Canada, Emmanuel Macron of France, Boris Johnson of the UK, along with Princess Anne and another uh, of uh, uh, another man I don't know. <laughs> Trump is never actually directly mentioned in the video, but. It's pretty clear they're talking about him because what they're saying is that like, oh, you know, he takes forever at these press conferences. He Trump spoke for two hours extra in like these impromptu press conferences, uh, you know, on top of meetings along with uh, the leaders of France and Canada, et cetera. Then you have Trudeau very visibly being like and you could see his, you know, his team's jaws drop to the floor. So it's kind of hard to hear, but if you listen closely, you can hear Trudeau saying, and his team's jaws just dropped to the floor. And that goes to what Alex was talking about, which is that Trump had held these really long press conferences. Right. And that is, well, that's obviously not normal. Usually, I mean, Trump had a planned press conference for the end. You don't do two hours of impromptu conversations 
in front of world leaders because they also have their own schedules. I mean, these guys were late to their own meetings. Uh, but to Zach's uh, earlier point of like, we're we culminating in this moment. Uh, I say yes and no for two quick reasons. Uh, the first one of yes is like Trump has been battling with the alliance forever and he's clearly has not made a lot of friends on the world stage. Macron uh, and Trudeau are not as big as fans. Boris Johnson seems to be wary these days. Um, but no in the sense that I think the meeting ended up being successful and we'll talk about it. Uh, and and NATO's actually been a somewhat of a success story almost despite Trump um, in these past couple of years. So what I think is interesting, um, you know, so they're all in London for this summit, right? It's supposed to be this kind of big like kumbaya moment. It's the seven 70th anniversary of the NATO alliance. Um, so it's kind of this big birthday bash in London. They're all there. Um, and, you know, what's weird is like in previous iterations of these meetings, we've seen leaders like Trudeau and in particular Macron kind of try to cozy up to Trump and, and really, you know, flatter him and try to, you know, be his buddy to try to see if that would get him on their side and maybe ease some of the tension. And that obviously hasn't worked. Um, and so we saw a very different kind of uh, dynamic, I think, this time. And so just going back before this meeting happened, Macron uh, gave this interview to The Economist in which he basically said in so many words that Europe can no longer count on the United States and should start to take care of itself uh, and that NATO was suffering a brain death. That's a direct quote. Yeah, yeah. that's a direct quote. I, I think this is, quote has been taken way out of context and blown out of proportion. So when he says it in the Economist interview, when he's talking about brain death, he's saying that he was upset that the U.S. and Turkey, two NATO allies, made the – like worked together the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Syria without consulting their allies and that this was leading to like a brain death and strategic cooperation among NATO. He clearly does believe that there's some issues with the alliance. Like he kind of wants France to lead it now. Um but I think the brain death, it did not refer to the alliance as a whole. I just think that that's a very important thing. I think what Jen mentioned a second ago, which is that Macron was worried about, you know, trusting America. That was actually, I think, the big part of the interview. Right. Either way, it pissed Trump off, right? And so when he gets to London, he, you know, basically uh, is not thrilled about that. And he ends up defending NATO and it's like, yeah, uh, brain death. It's actually NATO's amazing. And this, like it's doing so much better now. This speaks to the the sort of paradoxical point that Alex was making earlier on, right? Yes, while tensions were very obvious at this meeting between the U.S. and basically all the other major NATO powers, it, it's striking that Trump has been as forthright defending NATO as he ever has, as committed to the alliance as he's ever been, because Macron uh, attacked it in a way, arguably, depending on how you interpret it, certainly how Trump interpreted it, uh, to the point where some people are speculating that this entire thing was Macron doing, like, reverse psychology on Trump, like the way you do with a kid. Like, you don't want this cookie. You don't want this cookie. I want the cookie. And, like, that that seems to be the theory of Trump's behavior going on here. And I have to say it's not totally implausible that's that's what he was trying to do? I would disagree. <laughs> I mean, I think Macron has been a, a constant critic of, of NATO. And and look, I mean, th there have been tons of European leaders lately that have been very upset with the way, the, you know, American leadership, quote unquote, has been happening under Trump. I mean, Merkel in 2017 was like, countries need to start fighting for themselves. Angela we Merkel, Chancellor of Germany. Thank you. Angela Merkel, Chancellor of Germany. Uh, says, like, we need to start, you know, taking care of ourselves. We can't trust America anymore. Macron is only kind of adding to that argument that it, it speaks to a, a a bigger issue on the continent that they are worried about where America's heading uh, with Trump at the helm. And so Trump already had his own issues with NATO. Uh, I don't believe that Macron was was going after Trump and trying to get him to, like, like it again. If anything, it's I think Jens Stoltenberg, who's the secretary general of NATO, 
deserves immense credit for keeping Trump somewhat in line because he keeps saying, like, because of you, NATO allies are spending so much more money. It's way better now. We're focusing on China. We're focusing on so many things. You are the mastermind behind NATO's resurgence. And, like, that's just not true. NATO allies have been spending more money since, like, 2014, et cetera. I, I believe there was a piece in the Washington Post that was, like, they're doing this to flatter Trump. And they quoted senior European officials right. on this point because they just assumed Trump wouldn't read the article. 100%. Which, again, turns out to have been correct. So that's what— yeah, you know, going back to Macron and the whole like flattering issue, it was also really interesting to see when Macron and Trump actually sat down next to each other for one of these little what's supposed to be short press conferences where Trump ends up going on and on talking about Rudy Giuliani and God knows what else. Um, at one point, he and Macron are talking about this issue of foreign fighters in Syria. So these are fighters who have come from other parts of the world, not Iraq and Syria, and come to fight um, on behalf of ISIS and other terrorist uh, groups and fighting groups there. And so there's this issue just quickly that, you know, European leaders um, and others are trying to deal with is like, what to do with them now? Like, do we take these fighters back to our countries? Like, how do we do this? Do we just leave them in, in camps and in prisons in Syria? And so Trump has very obnoxiously basically threatened European leaders and said, what if we just dump all these ISIS fighters back in your countries, just leave them on your borders, um, which is not a super nice thing to say to your allies. And so Macron and Trump are kind of, I don't know if uh, I didn't, I don't know if a reporter had asked them if they're going to talk about that or if it just came up organically. But either way, Trump says this sitting next to Macron and he says, yeah, why don't I send you a bunch of ISIS fighters? And Macron just like cuts through what he's saying and goes, let's be serious. Let's be serious. And like basically shuts him down and is like, you're being ridiculous. We're on camera. Like this is a very serious issue. And it was a very different Macron-Trump dynamic that we saw. And I thought it was really fascinating. Um, and then, you know, of course, at the end of this, we see Trump responding to that tape to get back to the, the tape at the beginning. And he, you know, somebody asked him about, you know, what is this? Uh, you know, what do you feel, you know, how do you feel about Trudeau um, and and everyone making these comments? And he calls Trudeau two-faced. He's like, yeah, well, he's two-faced. Um, but interestingly, he goes on to say, but actually, I think he's a good guy and I think we'll probably work it out. So it's this weird, like, it was very different. It was the less disruptive Trump in, in a lot of ways. I mean, you still had Trump, but it's like, we're several years into the administration now, and, like, they know what they got, right? Like, other leaders know what Trump is, and they're kind of over his crap. And they're just like, all right, listen, like, whatever. You know, Jen Stoltenberg knows how to how to deal with him, flatter him. Macron's like, that didn't really work for me because he's still being not nice to France, and, you know, not it didn't work. So I'm just going to be, you know, French to him. Uh, it's okay. I'm of French descent. I could say that. They're sometimes rude. Um, but, you know. The French? No. No. But, uh but yeah, like it was this very, I think, strange dynamic that like we're used to seeing debacles at NATO because Trump is being this like wrecking ball. But this day was kind of weird. It was like he was like, eh, we'll probably still get along. It's OK, guys. And eh. and everyone was just like, Ugh, we're over you, dude. The other thing that's interesting about that, despite the, the almost shrugging off of the Trump casual insults and rolling yeah. with them and just general catty tone of it, is that there were there were some actual deliverables right. from this meeting, right? Like it, NATO agreed to a bunch of seemingly important things. At this conversation. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, another I, – I truly believe it was a successful summit. So first of all, you had – Stoltenberg was announcing that we – you know, NATO had agreed to a new plan to defend the Baltic countries and Poland, which I know we'll talk about more in a bit. Woo! <laughs> and, uh, and this was a big deal because Turkey was threatening to kind of veto it over – basically, we want NATO to recognize like, you know, Kurdish – 
fighters as terrorists, and NATO was like, we are not doing that, but they relented, so it moved on. These plans were announced. That was actually kind of a big hurdle for NATO to, to jump over. Um, NATO also said that space is a new defensible frontier. Uh, the final frontier? Perhaps. Who knows? There might be a future one, uh, but it's joining air, land, sea, and cyber. And then you had Soldenberg being like, hey, China, by the way, we're monitoring you. Uh, we're seeing your aggressive military rise, and this is a, yet a new front for NATO to deal with. But it does show that there seems to be some momentum in, in moving the alliance forward. And then you even have Trump tweeting about his happiness that, you know, since I believe 2016 or so, there's been uh, – NATO allies have been spending $130 billion more dollars on defense, and they have until 2024 for they all to, for them all to get to that 2 percent marker. 2 percent of their GDP they're supposed to spend on their own defense budgets, right? Exactly. Okay. So – Good. Like, you know, we were talking not that long ago, actually, earlier this year about how Trump had threatened in the past to, like, withdraw from NATO. And now he's somewhat singing its praises. And the alliance seems to be trugging along just fine. So, yeah, for the moment, despite Trump, NATO seems to be doing quite well. Yeah, I I, want to take a step back on this now, because the issue here is not just uh, awkwardness. It's not just, like, short-term agreements, because what you're describing are important moves forward for NATO. But if NATO itself uh, isn't, you know, actually an effective alliance, it doesn't work in the way that it's supposed to in an underlying way, then, you know, none of that really matters. So so that's the question I really want to tackle now, right, that we should talk about in light of all this, is to what extent can we speak of an important and cohesive NATO in a world where there are all these deep disagreements, levels of mistrust, and uh, not really a Soviet Union anymore, which is what NATO was initially created to combat? Right. So I think it's important to, as Zach said, NATO was created for the main reason of, of combating the Soviet Union. And this was mostly a Western European project. Over time, it's moved further eastward, and we'll get into why that is. But if you want to understand, like, why NATO is important to many countries in Europe, one of it is it's to keep sort of, you know, Soviet now Russian aggression at bay. It's to create a more sort of like political military unity among allies and among countries and to create a united front that is that combines North American and European power and really, as they see it, as sort of a, a beacon of democracy and, and military power in, in the region and from basically northern Africa to the Arctic and eastward into Russia. And so to... What I'm excited to hear about in this episode is, Jen, you were just in Poland. Yeah. And, like, that's literally, like, NATO's frontier with Russia. Right. <laughs> and so, I'm, I, I, like, if you want to understand why – I know I, I want to understand why NATO is so important to so many countries. Like, Poland is a perfect test case. Yeah. So, just kind of go into that a little bit. So, I, you know, most of you listeners probably know uh, my background is Middle East stuff. No. Right? Yeah, I know. It's, it's shocking. And terrorism and all of that. Um, and so, for me, for a long time, like – I kind of understood the whole, like, what is the point of NATO thing? Because it was kind of like, you know, for a long time in the post-9-11 world, it was mostly about counterterrorism. And, like, Russia wasn't really on the rise for a while. Like, Russia was still there, but it hadn't been, like, super belligerent. Um, And then, of course, you know, Russia seizes Crimea and invades, you know, the Donbass region of Ukraine. And all of a sudden, like, Russia is this big, scary thing again that's actually, like, taking over territory that it, you know, once used to claim as part of the Soviet Union. Um, so I got that, right? But I never really understood kind of like the the really core importance of NATO until I went to Poland. And, you know, this is my first real substantive trip to Europe, uh, which I know is stunning, but whatever. Um, the food's good, right? The food's amazing. Uh, I also had incredible Georgian food, which, oh, my God. Georgian food's awesome. Insane. Amazing. So Damn. anyway. Um, I could live on Katapuri only alone forever. Oh, absolutely. And so it started like really – 
right off the bat. So I get off the plane. I'm, you know, in a taxi. Uh, I get on and, you know, he says in Polish, hello. And even though I had practiced in my Polish guidebook uh, how to say back, I said, hi, like an idiot American. But we're driving down the street and, you know, from the airport to my hotel. And I look and I see and I go, oh, my God, that's NATO. And there's this, like, massive building that is, like, this NATO whatever training thing or headquarters. I'm still not really sure what it was. It was this massive facility, and it had all these, like, NATO banners on it. And it was, like, this pride of this city. It was this huge building. And you see all these soldiers, like, walking past. And I was like, oh, my God, like, NATO's a thing here? And so it started, like, right off the bat. Like, it's a very present thing. But I had all of these, you know, meetings and interviews with people And every single time, you know, when they talked about, you know, a lot of these were about defense and security, you know, because that's obviously what I do. And when you ask them, like, what is Poland's, you know, security strategy? And the answer is one word, America. (laughs) Like, it's NATO. It's America as part of NATO. But we really need NATO. Like, we don't have our own very strong defenses. There's no way if we were to go up against Russia— that, like, we would have any sort of, like, st- you know, uh, chance of standing against them. They're watching Ukraine. They're neighbors. They have, you know, thousands of Ukrainian refugees that have come over the border and now live in Poland. They're trying to work with Ukraine to try to support them. They're very worried about NATO supporting Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it was just fascinating to me to see that, like, looking to NATO, like, this is millions of people in this country who are literally relying on the United States backing of NATO for survival. Like, there's no, like, oh, yeah, we don't know what NATO's point is or, like, what is NATO even doing? It's literally, like, we will die or become Russian if NATO doesn't exist and if NATO doesn't defend us. And it was really fascinating. And I talked to this kid who is probably in his mid-20s. He's getting his Ph.D. at Yale. He was talking to me over dinner, and he said, look, you know, when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003— Everybody was really mad in Europe at the United States. And I think those of you who were alive back then probably remember, like, it was really controversial in a lot of parts of Europe that the U.S. did this. And he said, I didn't get it. He's like, I I was really, like, baffled. Like, why are you mad at America? Like, America is coming to save you. They're going to give you democracy. Like, they're going to protect you. And, you know, I was laughing and I was like, yeah, that's not really how it went. He's like, no, I mean, I get that now. I'm an adult. But he's like, no, I'm Polish. And, like, NATO and U.S. troops in NATO are literally, like, our saviors. They're our protectors. They're our guarantors. And he's like, it was just a fascinating way for him to, like, realize that that's not how everyone sees it. And for me, it was this huge, like— oh, that's why NATO matters, is that there are all these countries that most of which were part of, you know, formerly part of the Soviet Union, that when the wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed, they, you know, became fledgling democracies. And a lot of them eventually entered into NATO, including Poland. And they're like, look, we are part of like NATO. We need this to be like a robust alliance. So there's a lot to chew on there in what Jen just said. Uh, We're going to take a quick break And when we come back, we're going to talk about the justification for NATO's existence, uh, the arguments for and against uh, U.S. participation in what Jen was just describing, a security regime for Eastern Europe, and, uh, you know, how this should cause us to think about the Trump administration's impact on America's role in the world. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. 
Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody. We are talking about NATO. And as you may remember from before the break, uh, Jen shared a lot of the on-the-ground sentiment that she saw in Poland uh, about why NATO seems viscerally important to them, namely that otherwise they'd be exceptionally vulnerable to a Russian invasion. And I think, I think it's true that uh, we don't appreciate from Washington the extent to which this is true in Poland and uh, other countries that are bordering on Russia and were former um, communist sphere of influence countries like uh, Estonia, or I, I visited in 2011, and you hear the same thing, right? They're all really, really, really scared yeah. about Russia. And that was back in 2011, before Crimea and Ukraine and any of that, yeah. right? It's, it is, it's a deep and, and visceral thing, I think, in Eastern Europe, which is why it made sense for NATO to expand there. At the same time, though, there are a lot of, of experts who believe that the decision to expand NATO to those regions played a role in provoking Russia and right. Putin specifically to be more aggressive in the first place. Like, what do we make of that claim? I kind of buy it to a certain extent. And, and just uh, what's interesting is hearing about Poland and Estonia very quickly is like the further west in Europe you go, the less obviously worried about Russia they are. And so you sort of find that there's less excitement for NATO. Like, I, you know, I hate to always bring up Spain, but when I'm talking to like, you know, Spanish officials, they're like, yeah, we're contributing to NATO and it's important and whatever. But like, what are we really worried about? Like, they're more worried about terrorism coming in from Northern Africa than anything else. And of course, if you're in Northern Europe, you care more about like Arctic security stuff, which Russia is playing a part in. And of course, if you're in Poland and Estonia, you're going to care about Russia more than anything. And so NATO is very visceral. Right. but I do buy the expansion argument to a certain extent. So let's remember that in the, you know, when the Soviet Union fell, there were literally people being like, does NATO matter anymore? Like, is this even an alliance that's that's required? And the American officials were making this, were worried about this too. In the early 90s, they were talking about, okay, well, how can we more use NATO? Like, what, what can be its real purpose? And they started to expand. They started to offer membership to other countries in the in Europe and further moving eastward. And we keep seeing this happening uh, going forward and forward. And this mattered because when the U.S. and and, and Russians were meeting in the early 90s, there were basically discussions of like, hey, you know, the Russians were going, you're not really going to mess with like our area, right? And the U.S. didn't really give like a guarantee, but there were assurances of, no, we're not really going to encroach. And then you start seeing, you know, Baltics. You start seeing Poland. You start seeing other countries nearby. And there are even plans, I believe it was 2008, of, like, bringing Georgia and Ukraine into it, or at least having those talks. And, like, those are red lines. Yeah. Right? Those are absolute red lines for Russia. And so I I do have – so I, I, have, I always go back and forth on this in my head in that there are definitely reasons for wanting these kind of countries in, right? You're protecting them. They couldn't protect themselves from, from Russian threats. Uh, they do contribute something to the alliance. And – 
it is a way for, on the political side of the political military alliance to get them to kind of conform with more democratic values. But this isn't done in a vacuum, right? Especially when the U.S. is trying to create better relations with Russia at the same time. So there's always been a duality right. in our in our policy. But I'll also say on the other side of that, it wasn't just like the U.S. and European countries like reaching out to these countries. These countries were reaching out to NATO and to the U.S. It's true. A lot of them, including especially Poland, they were like, can we please be in your club? Because we don't want to be Russia anymore. Thank you very much. Um, and they were basically like, what? do we have to agree to? Like what, you know, we want democracy. We want to like throw off the old like communist yoke. Like what do we have to do? And you have a lot of people who were anti-communists who were trying to basically like, you know, tie their fortunes together with NATO and the U.S. that they could have that protection. So it wasn't just one way. It wasn't just like, hey, the U.S. is trying to like reach out and encroach. That's obviously how Russia interpreted it. And, you know, for good reason. But a lot of these countries were literally like begging, like, we will agree to whatever, like, the limitations, fine, but please just, can we be in NATO and have your protection? Uh, the other thing I think that's, uh, I don't really find persuasive about the Russia uh, threat argument is that it doesn't really match up with the timeline of the 2008 attack on Georgia or the 2014 war in Ukraine, which seem to have been triggered by concerns other than NATO expansion directly. I mean, you can make an argument for 2008, and people have. Uh, but 2014, I think it is very difficult to say that what Putin was doing there by annexing Crimea was trying to strike back against some plan for Ukrainian NATO accession rather than dealing with the fact that a leader that it didn't like there had been toppled uh, by domestic protests and that he thought they were coming for him next. That, that seems to me to be, to be the more persuasive explanation there, which again, which makes Ukraine into more of a cautionary tale, more of a, of a justification for why one ought to expand NATO than an argument against it, right? Because Ukraine right now is a, is a struggling democracy. It's a democracy, but one in, in serious dire straits due in large part, but not entirely to the Russian invasion, uh, dealing with a war inside its borders. And now all of these other countries, countries that are, are free in some respects to do what they want to do to integrate more fully with Western Europe, to solidify democratic transitions from the post-communist era, uh, they, they have the breathing room to do that without having to be as worried about a Russian attack. No, that's true. I mean, uh, the last time they can focus on defense and security, the more time they can focus on politics and, and, and democratization or whatever else they want or anti-corruption, whatever they really want to do. Uh, however, I am always – and this is always the counterfactual is, you know, had Ukraine been in NATO, would Russia have gone into Crimea? Because, of course, the core of NATO is Article 5, which is effectively an attack on one ally as an attack on all. They all come to their defense. And so I kind of – you know, we'll never know. But I – I'm kind of persuaded, at least by, when I think about it, yeah, even though, you know, Russia really wants Crimea and Putin especially does, I, I just, you know, had, of course, it's a very long process, but had Ukraine been in the alliance, I don't think Crimea would be Russian now. And just to bring this kind of back to where we started with Trump and NATO, you know, I'm glad you brought up Article 5 and the actual, like, worry about, like, would Russia have attacked Ukraine if Ukraine were NATO? Well, part of the concern is, you know, would America defend Article 5? Like, would it accept Article 5 if specific countries that are not, you know, that are more on the periphery, I guess, if you will, uh, of NATO, like, would the U.S. come to that aid? Would the U.S. say, okay, yes, we are going to go to war against Russia for this country? And that's been a lot of the fear of Trump is that, you know, he is, you know, for a long time, uh, for, you know, months and months in his administration at the very beginning, he refused to kind of fully commit to Article 5. Um, he eventually did. Um, yeah, earlier this week, you know, he was kind of talking about 
uh, he was like, again, a little hedgy. You know, somebody asked him, you know, would you defend these countries? Do you defend Article 5? And he said, well, are they paying their dues? Which is Trump's weird confusion about, like, they're not paying dues. It goes back to that 2% of, right. of Bre- their own budget. But Yeah, brief recap on how that works. NATO, NATO members are supposed to spend 2% of their own budget on defense or more. Uh, Trump is really mad. He thinks this is like money they pay directly to NATO or seems to suggest that's what he thinks, which is not how it works. It's literally just the, what their defense budgets are. So he even had a dinner at this NATO summit for countries that hit the 2% target basically to snub everybody yeah. who didn't do it. But he basically said, like, I don't know, are they up on their dues? Like, are they paying below, like, 1%? Because then, I don't know, maybe we'll have to check on that before I decide whether I'm going to defend them. And that is, like, terrifying for a lot of countries. But if you actually look, I think we talked about this yesterday, Alex, if you actually look, the countries that most need the protection of the United States in Article 5 are like, yeah, no, we're totally spending that money because we really need you to, like, not, you know, just say, screw it. I don't care. We don't have to defend you. You're not paying enough on, on you know, your dues. You're not paying enough towards defense. And so I think that goes back to, like, how Trump has been, you know, disruptive and how so much what he personally says and thinks actually has so much kind of impact on this entire NATO structure. The weird thing about alliances is is they're basically just like big formal promises. Like NATO has all of this architecture, but ultimately there is no mechanism for forcing any NATO country to comply with one saying, you know, we've been attacked, we're invoking Article 5, please protect us. Even if the alliance decides as a whole, one country, a rogue country in NATO, let's say Turkey, for example, could just be like, no, I don't want to. And no one can make them, which means that concerns about the United States wanting to act on its promises, because the U.S. is obviously the most important and powerful country in the alliance, and without it, the whole thing doesn't work, create concerns for the alliance as a whole, creates a level of uncertainty. And so if you're a Russian and you're thinking about testing NATO, Putin has apparently long wanted to break NATO, that is, show the promise of Article 5 to be an empty one, he's like, well, maybe under Trump – The U.S. won't defend Estonia or Latvia, and maybe I can send a few troops in there and see what happens. Now, he hasn't done that, thankfully, because the – presumably because the risk is way too high of of a war with NATO powers, and that could go nuclear. But these are the stakes we're talking about, right? It's like we're we're constantly – uh, trying to gauge certainty levels, gauge the credibility of promises for different countries to, to really stake their very survival on these sorts of things. It's, it's one of those things that never makes the headlines, uh, but is a constant high-stakes game that could blow up at any minute. So this is why when we hear, like, rumblings that Trump has thought about withdrawing from NATO, this is, this is what, like, these are the stakes we're talking about, right? I mean, let's, let's be clear. If the U.S. were to withdraw, obviously NATO loses its main backer, its main firepower. But also there is no European consensus on how to move forward. Would the alliance dissolve? You know, if you were talking to French officials, they would probably say, we will start our own sort of European version of NATO and we will lead it. Le NATO. Le, le, le OTAN. Uh, uh, if you listen to the UK, you'd probably find that, oh, well, we just need more like bilateral relationships and we'll sort of figure that out. If you NATO listen, Brexit. NATO Brexit. If you listen to Germany, they'll be like, well, we don't need nukes. So like, let's just calm down. We don't need to have like, it. And then if you listen to Eastern Europe, they're like, well, just do something, like get something together. So it, this is a problem is that like, beyond just the firepower issue. There is no future for NATO that is well planned out if the U.S. were to withdraw or to not really show its commitment towards it. And 
this was my worry even during the presidential campaign hearing Trump t- call NATO obsolete and all that because I was worried that, you know, if Russia did encroach into Estonia, his first reaction would not be, well, Article 5, game on. It would just be, how much are they spending on defense? Show me their budget. And and then he would look at it and then make a decision. And that's just not how it's supposed to happen. It's And, and finally, it's important to note the only time Article 5 was ever invoked was – in the United States' case, after the 9-11 attacks, NATO allies came to America's defense. So it's kind of messed up for the U.S. to even at this point, right. like, waver on that. And, you know, this is why this kind of lack of of faith that U.S. that the U.S. would defend these countries, part of that is why countries like Poland are actively trying to get more and more U.S. troops literally in the country. So you have Poland trying to basically entice Trump to send even more U.S. troops by saying, we'll build you a base and we'll even call it Fort Trump. Now, most people I talk to think that this is never going to happen, that it's rhetoric on both sides. But the point is that, you know, by having U.S. troops physically in these countries, that the U.S., if they were attacked, the U.S. would therefore not only, one, be there and ready, but would be on the front lines, right? So if you accidentally hit an American, they're now in the war, regardless of whether NATO, you know, they're holding on to Article 5 or not. So that's why you see, you know, this desire to have more NATO troops, more U.S. troops in these countries, which, again, to me is fascinating going from the Middle East, where, like, everyone's like, America, get the hell out. We don't want your troops. Everyone there is like, please give us more American troops. And that's why. Because they're like, even if Article 5 is fake and it fails, then— you know, at least we'll have U.S. troops still here. You know, it's a, it's a problem that is not just limited to the United States, this issue of NATO credibility. We talk about the U.S. because it's the most important country, uh, the largest contributor uh, in terms of military firepower. But uh, NATO is also dealing with serious internal divisions, starting with um, a contradiction with something I said earlier, actually, about countries in NATO focusing on their democratic transitions from former authoritarian rule. Well, now you actually have at least three member states – going in the wrong direction. Right. We're talking about Poland, which we've been which has been discussed as this really friendly pro-US state, but also has gone in a serious authoritarian direction in the past few years with uh, major democratic erosions. And then you have Hungary and Turkey, both of which are now fairly described, I think, by most unbiased observers as authoritarian states. Not like Russia style authoritarian, but but a kind of softer. At least democratic backsliding towards authoritarianism pretty heavily. Yeah. And when you have that kind of change inside of an alliance that's supposed to be founded on the defense of democracy and shared values, then you have countries inside the alliances that start to have different interests, different senses of what is important to preserve about their country and what they can do or should do as members of the alliance to protect themselves. Some of this is geostrategic and has nothing to do with democracy. Turkey is a special case because it's really a Middle Eastern country uh, in its strategic orientation. And so it cares a lot about Syria, for example. And that causes it to have different relationships with Russia than basically everybody else in NATO. But Hungary and Poland are creating different kinds of challenges, even as Poland tells every American who's listening, we want NATO, we love America, please, 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 please. They're moving in a direction opposite from what every American except for maybe Trump wants. We should send you to Hungary, Zach, in order to do some reporting on this. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. (laughs) But yeah, and this is actually a problem with, you know, when we talked about NATO expansion, this is an issue that I'm I'm worried about quite a bit. There are 29 members of NATO now, and a lot of what you – what NATO can accomplish as as an alliance requires unanimity. 
right, unanimity in its decision making. And the more allies you're adding, the harder it's going to, to make that happen. Like you're going to need, you know, the U.S. and Poland and Hungary and Turkey and all these countries to agree on stuff. And now they're hoping to add a 30th and a 31st and a 32nd. And with each expansion, yes, you can make the case that it's good for those individual countries. It might, you know, strengthen the alliance in, in, on the margins. But you're also making the political aspect of this alliance much harder to manage. And we've seen this already. The, the more allies that NATO brings in, the harder the decision-making process has been, which again goes back to my clearly love affair that I didn't know I had with Jens Stoltenberg, which is like the fact that he's kept this alliance sort of running smoothly despite more allies, despite Trump's disturbance, you know, the, that they're able to even come up with these platitudes, I actually find to be quite remarkable. It's why he's going to, he seems to, he was probably going to be in the position for the longest amount of any secretary general. I will say that I think, you know, just kind of to wrap up that it, it was pretty promising to see that Trump, you know, even if it's mostly from flattery, like you said, uh, we are Jens stands, uh, Stoltenberg stands. I don't know. Uh, Stoltenberg stands. Stoltenberg stands. Stolten stands. There Stolten you go. Stands. Nailed it. Um, you know, even if it is mostly flattery, and even if you know these NATO countries did start spending more uh, before Trump actually came into office, he has. I, I think nobody can quibble with the fact that he has been very vocal and very clear about wanting these countries to spend more of their defense budget and pushing very hard. And so, you know, I think seeing him this week at this NATO summit actually saying, like, NATO's doing great, NATO's stronger, like, NATO's, you know, one of the most important alliances is actually really positive in the sense of, you know, when he first came into office and in the campaign trail, like, people were very concerned that this could be the end of NATO. And I think, you know, we're now three, you know, plus, I guess, three years into his, exactly three years into his term almost. And it seems like things are kind of going okay, right? Like there are challenges that we just enumerated, but it seems like at least as of right now, things are kind of going in a pretty positive direction, which like all things considered, it's a pretty good sign, I'd say. Which, you know, this show, we don't tend to leave you with a lot of, hey, things are going okay. I, I was about to so say. you're welcome, everyone. I mean, I can, I can destroy of it. Of course that, you can. <laughs> but, I'm, but maybe I'm going to leave it. <laughs> Enjoy the happiness while things it Things are probably going to be okay for now. Uh, I want to thank our engineer, Malachi Brodus, our producer, Jackson Bierfeld. And I want to encourage all of you folks to rate and subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all. Bye.